0: You're listening to
1: Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies.
0: Welcome and thank you for joining us today. I'm Joshua Whiteside out of the firm San Luis Obispo office, and also your formerly unofficial, now official, co host of the Lozano Smith podcast. Uh, Sloan Simmons will be joining us in another podcast. And I say unofficial because I co-hosted the first three episodes of the Lozano-Smith podcast and have been present for other topics on school violence, religion, and public schools, and earlier this year on student issues prior to the start of the school year. Um, Very thankful for this recognition, and I'm excited to help bring that same level of Lozano-Smith quality to this show. Uh, With that said, let's transition to our topic and guest today. Today I'm joined uh, by Ruth Mendick, a partner in our firm from the Fresno office. Uh, Ruth is a co-chair along with me of our student practice group and has been instrumental along with the great support team we have here at Lozano Smith in keeping tabs on the changes occurring through the legislation uh, during this last legislative session and uh, Ruth while we're all on our toes anxiously awaiting uh, possible legislative action regarding a student vaccine mandate Um, that we'll be dealing with in the next year's legislative session. Uh, This past fall, we saw a lot of important bills being passed and signed by the governor that create new obligations for educational agencies, uh, including some that actually already today uh, and yesterday (laughs) demanded compliance, um, and uh, bills and laws that now require uh, compliance by January 1 that some people may have missed while focusing on all the discussion and debate over that vaccine mandate. So, uh, Ruth, welcome. And and what can you tell us about these bills?
1: Thanks, Josh. Yeah, we just thought it would be helpful um, to kind of uh, touch on the uh, topics that have been working their way through the legislature. Uh, Obviously, uh, we've all been kind of distracted along this last year uh, with all the COVID legislation and the executive orders and other things that have been coming down the pike. And so we just thought as we're going into 2022, that it would be helpful to um, go ahead and touch on, uh, highlight those things that are most important um, for the new school year. So um, the first thing we're going to look at is um, a couple bills that talk about the uh, attendance, um, the excused absences for students. Um, And, you know, generally these are covered or listed in um, 48205 of the Education Code. Um, And the first bill is Senate Bill 14, and that expanded the uh, definition of illness as an excused absence to now include um, absences for the benefit of the pupil's mental or behavioral health. And while it's not directly related to the COVID um, episodes we've had lately, it does, I think, is a recognition of the stressors that the students have been uh, working under and um, recognition of the uh, excused absences that are necessary for those um, purposes. So this will, the statute does not exactly define what, um, what is encompassed by um, being absent for the benefit of the pupil's mental or behavioral health, or, nor does it really provide for us yet what is going to be needed in terms of documentation or proof or a doctor's note like we have had um, in terms of a physical illness that excuses absence. So there are some, um, there is some gray area here still in this, in this legislation, but it is a recognition that, um, that mental health is an important issue for students and that, that their absence from school for that purpose is legitimate and my
0: understanding is that this is an urgent bill and it's already in effect like this this absent like a kid right now a parent could call in and say their kid needs to stay home from school do their their mental health and that could happen today right
1: correct yeah it was um this bill was introduced and in at in the legislature at the same time as another bill we'll talk about next a AB b516. And they were kind of competing, there's competing language in there uh, about which one was going to be effective first, but SB 14 won that race. And so it became effective immediately. And that was upon signature, which was in October, uh, October 8th of 2021. And so even at this point, if we have um, students who claim absences, even retroactively, it could be possible to... Uh, allow them to have excused absences based on their mental health um, as of that date of October 8th. So um, that will be something, too, that may be coming into play between now and January 1st.
0: And and Ruth, you know, when we have these sorts of gray areas, usually this is a opportunity for the Department of Education to come in and kind of help give us some guidance. Is is there any word on when they're planning on giving school districts and county offices and other educational agencies some help and figuring out what what should they be doing with regards to these absence requests?
1: Right. Yes, there is. Even though they that wasn't available as urgency um, as part of the urgency legislation, there is a section now that requires the CDE to provide some communication with some kind of recommended practices and some training programs that are going to help address these youth behavioral health questions. And those are due by January 1st of 2023. So we'll have a year kind of in between now and then when we will be kind of on our own on trying to figure out what exactly is necessary. So it'll be important for districts to kind of at least develop some kind of a protocol, I think, to um, evaluate those requests for absences and how um, how those are going to work for students who need to be away from school?
0: Well, it should be should be interesting to see how those play out. I think I've already gotten a couple of questions about um, whether a kid can take a mental health day to go to Disneyland. So we should have some fun
1: requests to deal with over exactly. this next year. Um, so you mentioned uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking you can't have Mickey sign your excuse no? <laughs> form, but yeah, but <laughs> maybe something. Uh,
0: maybe may Goofy, if you can reach him at the at breakfast, right? Maybe. <laughs> So uh, you mentioned uh, another uh, absence-related bill, um, Assembly Bill 516, about cultural ceremonies or events. Do you want to chat about that?
1: Correct. Um, Yeah, this one is one that was in the legislature at the same time as SB 14. um, And this one is effective not until January 1st of 2022. This bill adds participation in a cultural ceremony or event as a reason to allow a student to have an excused absence. This legislation does provide us a little bit of uh, some guidance in terms of what is intended by attending a cultural ceremony or event, um, and that it does define cultural to mean relating to the habits, practices, beliefs, and traditions of a certain group of people. So we've got a little bit of guidance in terms of what what is intended by cultural, and we can um, understand from that that it's different from the uh, religious ceremonies or the religious retreat that is separately provided for already in 48205. So different from the religious, this is purely cultural ceremony or event. We don't have any um, definition in terms of what's a ceremony or event. So we, there's still some ambiguity there and still some discretion for districts to decide what what is going to be required in terms of the formality or any um, evidence of or proof of those ceremonies or events, but at least we have a little bit of some direction in terms of what's included in terms of cultural. Um, districts will have to provide some kind of outline or guidance in terms of what the parameters are going to look like so they've got some consistency um, throughout the district on how they're going to handle that. And perhaps you know when the audit guide comes out, the um, auditors will have some insight too as to what is going to be required in terms of authorizing the, uh, these absences and allowing them to be excused absences.
0: Right, and that that audit guide will be interesting, especially in light of all the independent study changes. And I. Um, I'm expecting that we'll be having a separate podcast uh, later for for our listeners on that particular topic once we have that information. So stay tuned for for that. But moving on to another law that's been passed, um, my understanding is that we have a new 9-11 related bill, Senate Bill 254.
1: We do. And this is Senate Bill 254. And this doesn't impose a requirement on districts, but instead encourages schools to observe and conduct suitable um, exercises or um, events that commemorate uh, the events of 9-11 if they fall, the legislation says if it falls on a school day. So I don't know that they're prohibited from doing something if it is not on the school day, but... Um, At least the encouragement is based on those days that 9-11 is a Monday through Friday. In 2022, September 11th is a Sunday, so we'll have an extra year to kind of figure out what we might want to do for those exercises if um, if that's new to the district. Of course, some schools do something already and have been doing that, uh, so it may not be new for everyone, but the idea here is just to encourage that participation and that recognition if districts aren't already doing that.
0: Right. And and so this would be a day of observance, uh, not specifically a uh, holiday uh, that they would have to um, honor. I know that we've gotten a lot of questions about holidays for, uh, in the wake of Juneteenth. So I think, um, importantly, this bill specifies that it's really a, a day that's a, of encouragement to observe what happened on that day back, can you believe it, uh, 20 years ago. <laughs>
1: Right, exactly. Yes, no. this is not intended to be a, a holiday or um, a day away from school, but instead just to include a recognition of some kind uh, during the school day.
0: Okay, well, uh, changing topics here, I know that there were a couple uh, laws that were passed regarding homeless youth. Um, can you talk about what we've seen and the changes um, relevant to that student population?
1: Sure. The, um, again, there were two bills that related to homeless youth, and one was urgency and one was not. The urgency uh, bill was AB 27, and that added language to the education code and requires that districts include the homeless liaison contact information on the district's website and include particular information about homelessness and their educational rights and resources on their website. So again, this is just kind of a recognition of wanting to get the information out, connecting with homeless youth and letting them know what rights and resources there are available to them. So that was part of the urgency legislation that uh, if districts don't already have that info included on their website, that they should be adding that so it is included there now. And then the second piece um, of the information was um, SB 400. And again, this is going to be uh, information that's coming from the CDE to provide us best practices on how to obtain and collect accurate information about homeless youth. And this is going to include a model housing questionnaire that districts will give to their students to um, solicit information and get accurate information about how many of their students um, may need resources related to housing, and provide that information back to CDE. So that will be coming um, after the first of the year. We don't have a particular date, but uh, it should be coming soon, so uh, districts can be on the lookout for that.
0: That's great information. So... um... You know, kind of similar to the absences, we've got something in effect now and we have some, something um, in effect in January around the corner here. So important for for everyone to be mindful of those dates. Uh, kind of a unique uh, change, at least in terms of where it was located, in my mind, is we have a K-12 a bill that affects uh, at least the high schools um, that was in a post-secondary budget bill. I don't often find changes that we have to think about for our uh, school districts in in that type of legislation. So Ruth, what happened in that post-secondary budget bill?
1: Yeah, it's crazy because, you know, the the K-12 education budget trailer bill is long enough for us to have to go through. But um, here there was a nugget in the post-secondary trailer bill, too, that became effective in July. And this is a piece of um, what we've heard about for for a while that would be coming down the pike and that's the cradle to career data system that is to be created in terms of being able to um, create and to collect information uh, for students from their first education in kindergarten and to allow to help develop their careers along the way as they come up through the through the grades but um, this um, bill in particular, AB, it was in AB 132, which is the trailer bill. So the you know the overall umbrella piece of legislation um, <clears throat> provides that uh, beginning with the 2022-23 uh, 20, school year, districts have to confirm that their students complete a FAFSA form, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And um, there are gonna be options for families to opt out of that form if they, if they choose to do so, but there has to be documentation about, to confirm that that's what they have chosen to do. So they can't just say uh, no thank you and not have any, n- anything on record. Um, and then there will also be an alternative form for those students for purposes of the DREAM Act, for uh, those students who are eligible under the DREAM Act. So it will impose additional requirements on the district to go ahead and make sure that these forms are are completed uh, for their students. So again, nothing to do really immediately as of January 1, but know that this is going to be coming in July of 2022 um, is when these requirements are going to uh, kick in. And as we you know, collect more information about our students. Again, um, the legislation states, and it's a good reminder that any of this information is, you know, subject to confidentiality under FERPA and other p- applicable laws. So although we're going to have more information and data about our students, we just need to be mindful of, of keeping that information confidential and, and um, you know, not public. So the the that will help encourage families to want to... In- to complete the forms also.
0: And so these forms that you mentioned, um, the FAFSA forms, when when districts are working with these families to make sure that they're filling them out, then do the districts have to submit sort of a confirmation or, or an affirmation that they've been um, doing this practice with their families to, to some entity?
1: Well, again, we don't have the actual documents yet from CDE, but there is a, the the language does provide that districts have to confirm that they've completed it. So I'm anticipating that there will be some kind of a confirmation form or that districts will have to to complete to provide to CDE that they have done it or in the alternative to provide the opt-out form and have that documentation available.
0: Got it, okay, so we can expect to see Something along the lines of of that confirmation form or or something related to being able to provide that confirmation uh, in the coming months.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then um, I know that we had just some follow-up from our COVID world (laughs) of student legislation. We had uh, grade change requests from last school year uh, for our juniors and seniors. And we've talked about this before under Assembly Bill 104, Mm -hmm. that those juniors and seniors could request a grade change to essentially like a pass, no pass, um, rather than a letter grade. Mm -hmm. Has there been an update to that, Bill?
1: Yeah, well... The the substance of it hasn't changed except that originally AB 104 had some pretty tight timelines by which districts had to uh, notify the students, provide the appropriate forms, collect the appropriate forms, and there were there were pretty um, strict cutoff dates that they were not allowed to uh, ignore. And since then, again. Um, that, and those dates really fell like in July and August when we were all getting ready to go back uh, to the classroom. But since then, uh, there has there has been um, legislation that has extended those dates and allowed districts to, in their own discretion, extend the deadline after October 1st, 2021. So. Although we don't anticipate that there's going to be a big rush of uh, requests, I mean, it's potential that um, students could come back if the d- district did want to allow them that discretion and ask for their grades to be changed. Again, though, it, w- it only applies to grades during the 2020-2021 school year. So the student can come back you know, and say, you know, something's not going well this year. They can't use AB 104 as a reason for changing that grade to a pass, no pass, but if for some reason um, they'll claim they didn't hear about it, or for some reason they think they're entitled to uh, a change in the grade, um, it is possible under the law, No long, that, dead, that strict deadline is no longer there, so districts do have the discretion, if they wanted to, to go ahead and grant that request for A change to a pass no pass um, that wasn't otherwise available so just kind of a heads up in case you do get those um, the answer doesn't have to be no it may still be no but it doesn't have to be no um, depending on you know what the circumstances might be
0: right and specifically you said just to reiterate that the substance hasn't changed so this would still be related to last years uh, last school years juniors and seniors not um, a, a something new for this year's uh, juniors and seniors. Correct. Okay.
1: And and also just to note too, like there are other pieces of AB 104. There was the parent-initiated retention piece, and then there was the um, you know, the exemption for the juniors and seniors to be exempt from district requirements that were higher than the state requirements. Those haven't been uh, reignited. They're still, they're done. Um, so it's just this um, potential of the discretion for the uh, grade change that may, may come up again.
0: Okay, Ruth. Well, I have one last topic that I think we should talk about before we uh, let people go back to whatever they're doing, uh, celebrating for the holidays or driving, uh, moving on to another podcast, uh, <laughs> is a pretty exciting topic of ethnic studies uh, course. Now, this is something that I know that a lot of people have asked us questions about, and a lot of parents are very interested in this topic, and I think it's important to kind of lay out what this new law says um, with regards to adding ethnic studies to a high school curriculum. So AB 101 um, is the bill in question that now is is a law that's in place, and it requires that school districts provide a ethnic studies course at high schools so this only applies to school districts and charter schools and other local educational agencies that are serving students in grades 9 through 12. It requires them to provide a high school ethnic studies course commencing with the 25-26 school year and then that will turn into a high school graduation requirement by the 29-30 school year. Uh, so, that is a, the, the big change um, is, is just making that um, what some districts currently have as an optional elective into a uh, mandatory graduation requirement basically by the end of this decade. Now, the bill uh, does expressly authorize local educational agencies to require a full year course at their discretion if they want. And one of the questions that we get is well, how do we put this, this course together? So, there's actually several different ways that LEAs can develop their ethnic studies course. They can develop their own course based off of the CDE model curriculum that was just adopted by the State Board of Education earlier in March of this year. They can offer an ethnic studies course that was taught as part of a course approved under the A to G requirements of University of California and California State University. They can also utilize an existing ethnic studies course that they're already offering and uh, so that's something that if districts already have a program up and running, uh, they don't need to create a a brand new um, curriculum or course, Um, but they certainly, you know, maybe want to revisit and and think about, you know, as materials get developed by other districts, you know, whether there are going to be updates that are needed before we get to the end of the decade and it being a graduation requirement. And then finally, um, the other option that LEAs can utilize to develop this course is uh, by creating their own brand new uh, developed course that is not necessarily based on the model curriculum, but it's something that is uh, locally designed and approved by the governing board over the course of two public meetings with an opportunity for public input. So basically like a public hearing requirement. and to some extent, and the content of that curriculum has to be pretty specific. There are some pretty specific requirements, including making sure that it's not promoting a religious doctrine, it is not um, promoting any bias or bigotry or discrimination against a group of people or person based on their uh, protected characteristic. And the goal of ethnic studies curriculum should be to kind of be a, a, a deviation from things that we might see like with AP Euro um, and sort of the more European centric focused teachings of uh, European history and U.S. history that we already see in high school courses. Um, So this is uh, designed to try to look at other cultures, other backgrounds, Um, but ultimately it it still needs to be appropriate material for all students of all races and all backgrounds and so the, this sort of balancing act, um, it can be tricky if you're developing locally. Um, and so there are districts that I know currently that have this uh, curriculum on the books that they've developed locally. And so you, you know, as you're listening in, you may want to reach out to those who have been implementing this successfully so far, um, or you can reach out to our offices and, and walk through that process with help from one of our attorneys. Uh, Ruth, did you have any other comment on AB 101?
1: Well, I was just curious if there's any any prediction or uh, anything that we may be waiting for from CDE. Will they provide us any additional guidance on what needs to be included in this studies, or will they provide a curriculum for us that districts could adopt on their own?
0: It's a good question. You know, typically at the high school level, you know, there's not a one size fits all curriculum um, provided for courses. Right. So we may not see that from, from CDE, but I imagine that we might see some guidance on how to develop that course in a in a meaningful way. Um, and so they may provide like a roadmap for how that might get done and whether maybe the board should create a, a subcommittee or or have a parent stakeholder group that is opining on the materials beforehand. I could, I could see things like that being suggested, um, if not also included in subsequent um, cleanup legislation mm-hmm. prior to this becoming a, a graduation requirement at least.
1: Do we anticipate that um, publishers will be preparing textbooks that would fit this curriculum that districts could look to and evaluate on whether or not they want to adopt those textbooks?
0: I, I imagine so. You know, I I, I think there is, a, you know, if this is going to become a high school requirement, there is definitely going to be a desire to uh, sort of plant your flag, if you will, <laughs> as mm-hmm. being a a leader in in this in this arena. Um, and certainly, th- there's a lot of benefit I think in having an ethnic studies curriculum that is maybe going to appeal to a um, you know certain broad set of the community and so that is something that may be of interest to, to some uh, educational agencies. So, I imagine that there will be different uh, takes and different approaches taken by publishers on this and uh, I, I could see them definitely marketing to, to certain clients, uh, marketing to certain districts mm-hmm. uh, throughout the, the state on Great. that.
1: Very good. That'll give us something to look forward to for next year.
0: <laughs> yeah. As if uh, next year wasn't going to be busy enough. Right. Well, <laughs> well, thank you, Ruth, for your insights and your your time today. Uh, like I said at the start, you know, we're we're all kind of on pins and needles waiting for uh, the big news on that student vaccine mandate. You know, as of right now, we don't have a, a law in place that is clearly telling us what exactly that change is going to look like. But at least with these bills and new laws, you know our, our our educational agencies are are always having to be ready for change these days. So um, these are just a handful of, of of additional changes, and we hope the bringing them to your attention today um, as a listener will will help you identify and make some changes quickly to get into compliance. Um, of course, the best way to, to make sure that you're in compliance is to sign up for our firm's client news briefs and listen to our Lozano-Smith podcast. We also encourage you to visit our podcast page at lazanosmithcom podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Uh, additionally, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our next couple of episodes should be a lot of fun uh, discussing that COVID news and related legal challenges and the new mandate. Uh, For Ruth and myself and all of us at Lozano-Smith, have a safe and happy holiday season. And until next time, take care. Bye. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information
1: contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal
0: advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you
1: heard.